On July 28, 2008, the Sun Sphere was both the site and the subject of a lunch lecture by one of the architects who worked on creating the theme structure for the 1982 World's Fair. William Denton spoke about the challenges of constructing the world's first spherical building and what he hopes Knoxville will do with it now. Knox County Public Library is pleased to present this recording in our podcast series. As uh, Bill introduced me, my name is Bill Denton. I grew up here in Knoxville. I must have carried your papers at one time or another. Well, we, we can talk a little bit. There's some things that we can discuss and get into without the, the PowerPoint presentation has been uh, produced by the old architectural firm. I was president of it at the time, the architectural firm of Community Tectonics. Community Tectonics was founded by Hubert Bebb in 1970 in Gatlinburg. And he was the architect that when I graduated from the University of Cincinnati, I went to Gatlinburg and subsequently Morristown to work for Mr. Bebb. And he was a designer of the 1933 World's Fair. And so uh, I think the way this whole project got started, and I can certainly tell this story while we're waiting on the PowerPoint, we had a client named Litton Cochran. He's the McDonald's, or was the McDonald's franchise holder in East Tennessee for McDonald's restaurants. And ironically, many of you may or may not know this, but Mr. Cochran was uh, uh, one of the first franchise holders under Ray Kroc. He was one of the big men in the country to start McDonald's restaurants. And so he was building a restaurant in Gatlinburg, and we were the architects on it, and he came into our office. At that time, our office, the Community Tectonics office, was at the uh, 22nd floor of the Amer United American Plaza Tower. And uh, we worked and talked about the restaurant in Gatlinburg. Gatlinburg would not accept the Golden Arches, the typical McDonald's. They wanted something with stone and a wood shake roof and all that sort of thing. So that's what the meeting was all about. And he, as he left, he said, oh, by the way, we've got a problem with the World's Fair. In the meantime, our firm had signed up to be part of the master planning firm, and we did several international pavilions community tectonics. I think we designed the uh, common market, the Japanese, uh, Mexican, and I may leave out a few of those kind of buildings that we designed. There were boiler plate typical buildings. And he said, uh, this theme structure's got me concerned. He said, the only thing we've had suggested is an eternal flame. That's like John Kennedy, right, at Arlington Cemetery. Somebody wanted to do that. Because if you'll remember, the World's Fair started out as the Knoxville Energy Exposition. It was Energy Expo 82. And, of course, naturally the theme of that being energy. I find that not necessarily amusing, but isn't it ironic that we have these energy problems today and Knoxville focused on it 25, 26 years ago. So that's kind of something that I think we can all be thankful for that our community tried to focus on that many decades ago. Anyway, uh, Mr. Cochran said, well, we've had somebody suggested a court of flags, have all of the countries participating, and he said, we just don't have a theme structure. And uh, Bill, why don't you come up with something? Well, I contacted Mr. Bebb uh, to come in, and he had actually sold his stock. He had one share I think of the 100 shares of stock in the company, but that was just to retain our identity with him because he's, he's world known, Mr. Bebb was. He was friends of Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill in Chicago and friends with many, many people and companies around the country. And so uh, I wrote up a mission statement based on what Mr. Cochran had challenged us with that since the, the energy, since the World's Fair was going to be focused on the theme of energy, uh, and since the sun is the source of all energy, it only seems fitting that we create something to either honor or commemorate the sun. We ought to draw attention to the sun being the chief source of energy. Well, um, Mr. Cochran seemed, uh, he thought that was a good idea. 
And of course, doing a little bit of quick research on theme structures that uh, if you all during the fair happened to buy this book that we sold in the Sun's Fair, there's, there's a chapter in here dedicated to former theme structures. I might remind you of some of those. There was the Crystal Palace in England. There was the uh, Atonium, which was like a series. It was like an atom exploding in Brussels, Belgium. There was the 5H geodesic dome in Canada. There was the Space Needle in Seattle. There was the Hemisphere in San Antonio. And I may miss a few, but I'm just kind of reminding you of some of the past theme structures. There was a Trilon, I think it was called, in the 39 Chicago, I mean, uh, New York World's Fair. It was a sphere, a tower, and a triangle. And I don't know really what it commemorated, but they were interesting architectural features. And one of the most fascinating theme structures was in 1893, the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. That was the invention of the Ferris wheel. And the Ferris wheel in that day was like a big wheel and it had box cars, not a car for two people. But each car carried 20, 30, 40 people and these box cars were mounted on a spoke and thus the beginning of the Ferris wheel. So, um, Having researched all of that, uh, I realized that to do this sun sphere idea that Mr. Cochran thought, well, that sounds interesting. Well, got Mr. Bebb in the office in one Friday morning, and I'm hopeful we'll get the PowerPoint. If we do, I'll show you those sketches. No, we, we can't get that, but you're doing really good without it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Well, boy, this is going to be a talk, isn't it? This is, I thought we were going to have some show and tell here because a lot of the pictures are priceless, but we'll try to go through this without the pictures. Uh, anyway, the, uh, the idea was that, you know, all of these previous World's Fairs, the theme structures were maybe Ford Motor Company paid for it, maybe the government, somebody had money out there to pay for this thing. Well, Mr. Cochran was quick to tell us that this would have to be private enterprise investment, that the fair had no money for it, and that if we had an idea, we needed to find a way to develop it, etc. So my first inclination, I, told, I did some real rough sketches, which Mr. Bebb took them and embellished them and created three sketches, which I wish I could have shown you, and if you want to see them, I have copies of them in this book. I'd be glad to show them to anyone at the end of this presentation. But it stood to reason the only way we could build a theme structure is if we had some income out of it. And I quickly discovered that the uh, ability to charge a fee to just go up and look at something might be good for six months, but it wouldn't be good for 20 or 30 years. So we focused on the idea of a restaurant and so the early sketches which I'll be glad to share with you that Mr. Bebb did um, embellished an idea I had of just putting a spherical restaurant down on the ground much like the, hem the uh, geodesic dome was in Canada except instead of being a 5H dome this would be a complete spherical structure sitting on the ground and we actually proposed it to be over here by Cumberland Avenue. And we had just uh, previously, uh, my secretary, who was corporate treasurer and secretary of community tectonics in those days, she's with our firm today, she reminded me that we had lost in the competition for the United States Pavilion to a company out of Massachusetts. We came in second. And so um, we proposed this thing. and. Uh, but it was actually March the 14th of 1980 when the Knoxville International Energy Exposition Committee approved the concept of the Sun Sphere. Uh, those three sketches and all of the written statements that Mr. Bebb and I put together were actually done in uh, November of 79. Now, I want to impress upon you all, there's several people here today if they hadn't have been here, this wouldn't have happened. 
I absolutely refuse to take credit by myself for anything up here because there's, as you hear in this presentation, there are many, many hurdles that had to be crossed for this sun sphere to happen. Uh, I'll just mention briefly, the original investors, they really weren't investors, they were guarantors of loans and they put up letters of credit. There was a Dr. Robert Morris, who was a surgeon at St. Mary's Hospital. Robert Woodson, who was a grocery store uh, man up in uh, La Follette, Tennessee. Arnold and Sarah Tackett, I believe they were business uh, acquaintances of uh, Jesse Barr out of Kentucky. Sid Gilreath, a very worldwide known attorney who took up some interest in it. And of course, our firm, Community Tectonics, those were people that showed early interest in following up on this thing. And of course, once the fair approved it on March 14th of 1980, then there were some tasks, uh, you know, even though we had investor people finding the money, <clears throat> I discovered over sequence of several months was just absolutely impossible. The typical answer I would get to every meeting I would organize to go to and take what I thought was this tremendous idea, and boy, you just can't wait to finance it, they'd say, well, let me tell you something, Bill. If we would finance such a crazy idea, you could never build it because there's, that's, there's never been a spherical building on the planet Earth. And if you built it, why'd leak? I mean, we can't even keep these buildings out here that we have now from leaking. So, you know, I heard all of these cannot stories for literally months. And um, even though the fair committee approved it March the 14th, you have to go around as though this is going to happen. And uh, Barge Wagner, Sumner, and Cannon, who was the fair's civil engineer and a man by the name of Charlie Smith, I'm sure everybody knows Charlie, he actually worked for the fair, uh, they had a design department. Well they selected the site, which is where we are now. We got the soil test on this site, <clears throat> and when they came in it was enough, you know, the financing business was already enough, I think most people would have quit at that point. But we got the soil test back and they reported to us our friend Dave Barry at Law Engineering, uh, well Bill, you can probably put a hot air balloon on that site, but that's about it because there's 33 feet deep of wet blue mud all through this area. There had been a creek years ago and the L&N train station, all the old engines dumped their ashes out on the ground and this wasn't a clay earth hill as you might would like to build something like this on. So that was interesting and enough to make you want to quit. And then the financing people, uh, uh, you know, you have to tell you a little bit about Jake Butcher and then subsequently Jesse Barr. I had just finished designing Jake's house over on Melton Hill Lake and the only reason I did that is his wife has a, had a brother and I did all of her brother's work. That's how I got connected to designing that house. And uh, Jake introduced me to a guy named Jesse Barr. And I wouldn't have known Jesse from a bale of hay. I just had never met the man. I heard a lot about his uh, financial history at Union Planners Bank and so forth. And so um, I explained to him the dilemma I didn't tell him about the bad side. I didn't tell him about it would leak. I didn't tell him that it was the first spherical building on the planet Earth we were proposing and all the potential problems. I just told him that everywhere we'd been, and I'm, I'm serious, folks. I went to New York City to famous bond houses where they have these investors that are looking for high-risk, um, great return type of projects and just getting turned down everywhere. Well, if it wasn't for this man in the uh, melon-colored, or we'll call it big orange shirt over here, I promise you there wouldn't have been a sun sphere. Now, I'm telling you right now, Jesse Barr went out and got a UDAG grant. That's a uh, Urban Development Action Grant, I believe is the words for that. Is that right, Jesse? 
for $1 million. Oh, I was going to get to that. Well, Jesse went out hunting for this grant, and of course he goes to the mayor, Mayor Randy Tyree. Okay, let's give him a big hand. And Randy had a guy working for him that I'd worked with in Morristown for years, a man named Bill Ricker. And those three guys got the UDAG grant, and here was the key to this whole project being here. This UDAG grant was secured by a second mortgage, not a first mortgage. Because the idea of a UDAG grant was to provide financial impetus to projects so that a financial institution, it was like you had a million dollars in equity, so when the financial institution financed it, they could be in first position or have the first mortgage. So I'm here to tell you, if it wasn't for Randy, Bill Ricker, and Jesse Barr, and the work that they did getting the UDAG grant, the next impossible thing that happened wouldn't have, we couldn't even have gone there. Well, after that UDAG grant got in place, Jesse went to uh, First National Bank of Louisville, and I kind of learned that today. I always thought Jim Raycheck did that, so I was going to give Jim credit, but we'll still give him some credit, Jesse. But there was a vice president at First National Bank at Louisville that Jesse had hired years ago at another bank. And Jesse somehow had a way of convincing him to make a $5.2 million loan to this project as a first mortgage, knowing that the UDAG grant of a million, that made a total of $6.2 million. And again, if it wasn't for Jesse Barr and First National Bank of Louisville, this wouldn't have happened. Now, there was a lot of things in this financial, um, uh, I don't want to call it a crisis, but it was a, just a finance, it was just very complicated. Let's make it in those simple terms. All the investors had to put up letters of credit for their part of the guarantees. And these were somewhat limited, like our firm had a $250,000 letter of credit, and each one of these groups did. But when the closing was set up to uh, occur, uh, and by the way, these loans were all approved like in August the 12th of 1980. So the project was approved by the fair in March. We got an impossible site to build on in the spring. And yeah, we hired Economics Research Associates to do the economic study for this project because people wouldn't talk about financing without that. And Economics Research associates had done the study for the Space Needle, the Hemisphere, and all these other World's Fair theme projects. And that was a $40,000 expenditure. But once we got that done, they told us to the idea of a restaurant was a great idea, but the fair committee came back and threw us a curveball. They said, no, we don't want this on the ground. We want it up in the air. Well, from fall of 79 till the financing was approved on August the 12th our firm didn't as community tectonics we didn't have a contract we had nobody paying us and we had several other projects at the time I personally was working on Airport Hilton uh, a project that Randy and Bill Ricker did downtown called the State Street Garage which is a worth a story in itself how that ever happened that's another miracle Anyway, I would work on this project from about 11 at night after putting my three sons to bed. I would work on this till 2, 3, 4 in the morning because we didn't have a contract and I couldn't log time at the, at the office. So when the fair committee said, well, this can't be on the ground, it's got to be in the air, well, I go through the code books and the code books say anything over seven stories must be out of concrete. Well, to build a structure like this out of concrete up in the air like they wanted it, that's another close the book on this story. You know, that's just an impossible thing to happen. So um, <clears throat> Glenn Bullock, a local architect, was chairman of the Board of Zoning Appeals. And I don't want to imply that Randy's fire chief, uh, Chief Bradley, I believe it was Randy, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the chiefs. And they were cooperative. They'd just tell me all the problems, and they'd say, well, Bill, you come up with an idea to, you know, solve this problem. Well, the first issue was we had to convince the Board of Zoning Appeals that this was a five-story structure and not seven-story or greater. 
they were counting it from the ground. See, we had it up at this time, we had it up to 266 feet high, which is equivalent to a 26-story building. So somehow, along with the Holy Spirit guiding my lips and my brain, I was able to convince the Board of Zoning Appeals that this was a five-story building and not a 26-story building. So they granted that, they, uh, they granted that variance for this five-story building to be, as I told them, I said, look guys, this tower is like a crawl space or it's like a cabin up in the mountains on stilts. I mean, this five-story building sits up on this tower and the rest of it is just foundation, which is true. I mean, it is, but it was a stretch because the building codes were written for square, rectilinear, Look at the university. That's what the building codes are written for. They're not written for this. Well, those are just a couple of the issues during the summer going through these building code issues. Then the elevator people, which is run by the state, wouldn't allow us to have glass doors. And you know, one of the thrills of going up in the sun sphere was to ride up glass doored elevators so you could look over the World's Fair site and let that be part of the excitement. So we got that law rewritten, and we had, I think, a number, about seven issues like that. And of course, the health department had never heard of a restaurant up 266 feet in the air, so you, can, you can't even imagine the details that we had to deal with there. So August the 12th, when Jesse got the bank to approve the loan, well then we had, uh, that was in August the 12th of 80, we had about 18 months left, and we really hadn't started the, the official drawings. At this point, I think all we had in there in this book, if they were going to be uh, in the PowerPoint, but um, I've got them here if you want to see them, all of the preliminary drawings. And, and I'll share with you because on the radio program the other morning, they or afternoon, they were fascinated by this. Um, See, I researched during all this time, if we're going to do the sun sphere and it's about the sun, I need to know something about the sun. Well, the sun is 865,000 miles in diameter. So our idea was to make this 86.5 feet in diameter. And all of these bars or these columns that you see here represent uh, longitude on the planet Earth. And I realized from one study I read that if you cut the sun open or cut it open in any direction, it was white on the inside, you know, white hot. And then as it went out to the burning red that you see on the outside, it goes through the color spectrum of light yellow, bright yellow, dark yellow, light orange, medium orange, dark orange, up to the red that you see today when you see a sunrise or a sunset. So we had a carpet company named McGee Carpet who agreed that they were going to weave this carpet and when you got off of the elevators which would be white you would go through the color spectrum on the floor Well, we had to ditch that because we didn't have the money for that I'm just telling you some interesting things that didn't happen and on two of the floors we had revolving floor designs so that each revolution the less let's see the less ore of the building was Hardy's and Hardy's out of Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, you'd find it uh, uh, interesting. They run a lot of special restaurants and they run a lot of university food service over and above what you see on the side of the highway known as Hardy's restaurants. And so uh, um, working with those people, uh, they, by the way, they put in some money as well as Sun Oil Company, which sponsored an activity while people were standing in line to ride the elevators up and down to the observation floors. B. Ray Thompson, a local citizen, got one of his companies that he was a, a stockholder in, Sun Oil Company, and they put up several hundred thousand dollars and built an exhibit at the bottom. And that's why when you hear that the project was 6.6 .6 million, that other 400,000 came from Hardy's and Sun Oil Company. Uh, anyway, um, the, uh, the idea of cutting the sun open, we didn't get to make that happen. And the revolution, I was, the, the circular floor going around in one hour, I had worked it out with Hardy's that when they set the people at the table, they had planned 
cocktail, salad, entree, dessert, and they had it planned for a one-hour event so that when you got off, you got on, and when you finished, you were going right there. We had a lot of fascinating things like that planned that we just didn't have money to do. Um, a lot of questions that I had, for instance, you know, the bad soil condition, our member of our firm, Richard Bender, was our structural engineer, and I've just, I can't say enough great things about Richard, because he literally designed structurally every building that we did in our firm in those days, but he insisted that we get a national structural firm, a company out of Nashville called Stan Lindsay, and they had uh, design offices in San Francisco and Atlanta. And I knew we were in pretty good hands when his chief engineer that worked on this, his name was Socrates. So I, I kind of felt real comfortable then. And uh, so Socrates and I came up, I threw an idea at him. I said, what if we design this thing rather than, they were gonna do these caissons like in New Orleans, go down 40 and 50 feet to rock and all that. Again, the budget um, was being controlled by Rittenbach Construction and uh, can't say enough great things about a man named Bill Fortune and the man I think is president today, Don Freeman. And that construction company just did everything in the world to try to make the budget work till we had like I think 6.6 .6 million. We couldn't obligate beyond that because this wasn't a city of Knoxville project, it wasn't Knox County, wasn't the state of Tennessee, wasn't United States government, it was a bunch of individuals that wanted to see this happen. So anyway, uh, Rittenbach uh, worked on that caisson idea and it was just out of this world. So we had the idea, you all are familiar with your grandmother, maybe you all have a floor lamp at your home. And you know how a floor lamp has a big base on it and it's very heavy? And if you tilt the floor lamp over, it'll just sort of bounce back into place. Well, the Sun Sphere has a big wheel down here of concrete and I forget, I'll have to check my notes, but uh, I think there's uh, 30,000 cubic yards of concrete in this giant wheel underneath this that, the found, that these steel members come up out of. And the idea, if you have a 100 mile an hour wind on this sphere, and it pushes against it, or if there's an earthquake or any kind of thing that would happen and cause the sun sphere to move, it has enough weight here at the bottom to keep it upright and so that nothing will ever happen. And I'll admit, I was up here right before it opened and during the fair for that matter. If you've ever been up here in a storm, there is a slight movement in it. And, uh, but it doesn't bother me because I know what's down there and it's not going to go anywhere until there's an Armageddon or the Lord decides that it's to leave this place. Uh, again, the uh, budget cut the 85.6 radius down to 74 feet. I've heard numbers of 376 people that the restaurant was designed for. However, I can assure you there were times when there were over 747 people in these five stories. Uh, it was really entertaining during the fair because my oldest son, Randy, was an he was like a 17-year-old high school boy and he operated one of the elevators. So I'd love each night saying, well, who'd you get today? And one day it'd be Bob Hope, the next day Sugar Ray Leonard, the next day it was Randy Tyree, the next day it was <laughs> Jesse Barr. And it was just fun to hear, you know, and they'd hold their breath and they'd turn their heads. And, you know, it's pretty exciting looking out a glass elevator door as you go flying up the, the tower. Um, another thing that would be really interesting to you is, uh, gosh, I was so honored and fascinated by this issue. Um, the... Um, the structure, if you study the space needle or the hemisphere or any tall steel structure, they're built out of custom plate girders. What I mean is they take big sheets of steel and cut them and weld them and make all these pieces to hold it up. Well, our engineer in Nashville designed this so that every piece of steel in this entire structure
you can get American Institute of Steel Handbook. It's about this big. And in that are columns and beams. And everything in this structure you could go buy at a steel fabricating plant. There's nothing custom about this at all. And it was like the best way I could explain it to people back in those days, this is much like an erector set. Well, about the time we had that concept put together, I got a phone call from, you all probably never heard of the man, but being uh, where I went to school at the University of Cincinnati, he was really honored and revered around the country. His name was Buckminster Fuller. And Buckminster Fuller was a great structural engineer and an architect from MIT. And he created the 5H geodesic dome at the Canadian World's Fair and had the patents on geodesic domes. <clears throat> I never will forget, I don't know if I borrowed Jesse's membership or Randy's to go up to the LeConte Club to take Buckminster Fuller to lunch, but I was so honored, my head was that big sitting there for lunch with Buckminster Fuller <clears throat> and him trying to convince me to take a half of a geodesic dome and another half and put them together. Well, I was all for it till I found out it cost $12 million. <laughs> and that's why we didn't do that. But isn't that fascinating that Buckminster Fuller thought so much of our World's Fair and the Sun's Fair that <clears throat> he was, sure, he was a salesperson. He was selling his patent. But, I mean, I just thought that that was quite an honor that he would come to Knoxville to do that, to present his ideas. Now, <clears throat> After the Buckminster Fuller story, I, I plan to father's pictures of the structure as it goes up. There are, uh, I believe it's one, two, three, it's either six or eight, I'd have to recount, but there's columns in this little core behind you that's covered with glass where the elevators are. And when you go out today and you get off the elevator, if you'll look down at the bottom, those columns go straight into the ground and then there's a set of, of, of columns that kind of have a curvilinear look. I'm sure you all have seen those, and they sit on a big, huge concrete pad. i tell you this story because this is <clears throat> the structural concept of this building is like caveman construction. We call it, us architects and engineers call it post and beam. Post and beam. Well, the column on the inside and the column on the outside come together and go up side by side. And when you look up at the towers you'll leave, you'll see there's a pair of columns at each point going up. And when they hit the bottom of the sphere, they part again and the outer column goes out and it radiates back to the top. So you got an inside post, the outside post, and it wraps around. And then, much like a fan or something, all of these beams radiate from that post to these posts. So it's really quite clever the way this thing is built and yet it's built by the simplest like you see buildings up and down the highway. A very very simple concept. The thing uh, uh, too that I want to mention is having all those problems putting the kitchen in here. Well Hardy's wanted to experiment on the kitchen, which helped us immensely. They wanted to cook everything with pressure cooking. Be no deep fryers. I guess this might have been the healthiest restaurant in southeastern U.S. in those days. The kitchen, which was on level two, and I had these floors one, two, three, four, five for my simple head that somebody's come along and renumbered them in recent years, so I get lost. But on level two, the kitchen, all the food was cooked in pressure cookers, steam vats and steam. And uh, so that eliminated these hood and duct systems, these great big gigantic exhaust, although there is one. And when you look at the sun sphere, you think it's a perfect ball. But when you go on the top floor and get into the core, there's a little stair goes up. And hidden from the human eye is a hole up at the top of the sphere. And it has this one kitchen exhaust, all the bathroom exhaust. It has, that's where the strobe lights and everything, we created this little, like a hot tub area where everything is sunken so that all you see is the sphere. And uh, so that steam equipment in the kitchen made it possible to do all the meals and not have the problems with the hood and duct system. 
With that being said, I want to give credit to Henry Welch of West Miller and Welch, a local engineer designed all the heating and cooling and all of the equipment for this building. And then all the electrical was designed also by a Knoxville uh, man by the name of Glenn Norris. And uh, as the construction commenced in December of 1980, we had the April of 82. That sounds like a long time, but that's really just 15 months. And Rittenbach took on the impossible. It, I mean, I have to admit, I just didn't know if it's possible that it could be built in that short a period, but they did it. And Don Freeman was the project manager, and our office manager of our Knoxville office was Don Shell. And of course, we couldn't start the drawings till Jesse and Randy got this financial approval in August. We didn't, we couldn't start formal drawings till September. So the drawings for this building were put together by Community Tectonics, and I'm talking about the construction drawings uh, were put together in like three months. Now. The big surprise for me, being a little East Knoxville paper carrier, somebody made a mistake here earlier saying I guaranteed a million dollars. Let me tell you something. If I'd had a million dollars in those days, I wouldn't be here designing the Sun Sphere. I can tell you that. I'd have been on a beach somewhere. But uh, it was real interesting. We had these letters of credit which covered a million dollars from all the parties. But the UDAG grant and the bank in Louisville, they didn't want any of these corporations. They wanted personal guarantees. Well, I didn't dare go to my partners and say, well, guys, we all have to personally sign this thing. I mean, that'd kill the project, I'm sure, because that means, you know, your home, your car, everything you got when you personally guarantee something. So three of us, why they took my signature is a mystery. I could understand them taking Bob Woodson's signature, can't you, Jesse? Bob could sign anything. And I could understand Dr. Morris. He was a great, great surgeon, and those surgeons made a lot of money. And then myself, we had to personally endorse the bank loan, and I found out about that from a lawyer one afternoon, and the closing was the next morning. Well, I just had no choice but to sign. I figured, well, if these guys are crazy enough to sign it, I'll sign it. And uh, so anyway, we personally guaranteed that note. In the meantime, um, Randy and his administration had, after the World's Fair, had a plan to develop all of Knoxville from here. I don't know how far west it went, but they had Fairfield communities, as I recall, a man named George Donovan. They had the greatest plan, and that's what the Sun Sphere was supposed to do when the World's Fair was over. This was going to be the featured uh, beverage, food, gathering place. This was going to be, you know, everybody's water hole and place to eat and do all this stuff. Well, for some reason, maybe Randy can tell us someday, I don't know why, I think administration changed. And whoever was after Randy decided, no, ain't going to be no Fairfield community out there. And all those wonderful plans were ditched. And the Hardy's people said, hey, we're tired of paying the utility bills and there's nobody here. They had no parking, no future, no nothing. So they cut their lease. And of course, Sun Oil was just here for the fair anyway. Well, guess what? First National Bank of Louisville started sending me these payment notices for $5.2 million. Well, during the fair, this had made a lot of money and had paid that down. And if Kyle Testerman were here today, I'd thank him because right at the day when First National of Louisville was going to do a foreclosure on the Sun Sphere and on the people on the note, the city elected to buy this mortgage. So with that in mind, you need to know that this is your building. This building belongs to the citizens of Knoxville. It doesn't belong to a special interest group. It doesn't belong to one person or five. This is a publicly owned, city-owned structure now. And the Lord Jesus knows how I think uh, Kyle Testerman, or, and the city council, I guess, voted to go along with that. Now, since we don't have pictures, let's make sure we get all the credits. Uh, 
Uh, it explains why the building... I get that question all the time. What's the sun sphere doing? And I can't answer, you know. And, of course, this is a vast improvement over it being a uh, travel and tour center, a construction office, and all the different things that it's been. Um, the uh, interior design of the sun sphere is shown in this book. When it opened, one of the ladies in our office, Robbie Quentin Sam, she was the interior designer. And uh, I wish I had known my wife, Denise, at that time. She's a registered interior designer, and I wouldn't have had as many arguments about the interior design <laughs> in those days because Denise and I worked so well together. There was a couple of other things of interest. Have you ever been to the Sun Sphere during the fair or the few years after, and you hear a bells ring on the quarter, half, three-quarter an hour, the Westminster Chimes? Or at Christmas, you hear Christmas music. Or at Easter, you hear hymns and gospels and the seasons of the year. Well, we had the idea of putting a carillion. And I called Jesse one day. And, you know, Jesse doesn't know the meaning of the word no. He can't say no. You ask him something, and he'll say yes. He went out and got 30 business people to put up the money. The last time I looked, they were down on the observation floor. And I hope that the city or whoever's leasing or whatever's happening, they'll get those working again. But again, Jesse pulled a rabbit out of the hat and got that Korean. And I think the businessman did that in honor of Jake Butcher to thank him for what he did to make the fair happen. And let's see if we've missed anybody here. And then last but not least, I guess I want to recognize the old firm, Community Tectonics, because without them, I couldn't have worked on this. I got paid every Friday to do Airport Hilton, State Street Garage, and other projects in town. But, you know, to get to work on this, I had to have cooperating partners. And Mr. Bebb was the founder of the firm. And then Hugh Ogle ran our Gatlinburg office. And Jim Corkendall ran our Sevierville office. And Bill Vinson, who's president of Community Tectonics today, ran the Newport office. And Richard Bender was one of our engineers. And a man named Tom Robinson ran our Morristown office. And a man who's with another firm now, Butch Robertson, was our business manager. And it was, was really a lot of fun in those days. We. Uh, we had a lot of fun, but again, you need to leave here today knowing all those names that I've mentioned to you. Any one of those names breaks the chain, and the chain is just not together, and nothing happens. This was an event, an experience, and something to where it took cooperation from many, many people. And... Uh, I never did take the word no very well. My mother always claimed I was stubborn, so uh, every time we had a no, and we had many of them, it just meant that you were looking at the wrong place. You had to go somewhere else. And so I urge that you citizens that own this building, that you'll make yourself known at city council if, if and when the next thing happens at the Sun Sphere, or could include the Sun Sphere, could uh, that your energy and your interest be felt by those people because I was down there at some meetings a couple of years ago and I'm very disappointed nobody was there and they were just sort of giving this place away when in fact it ought to be something that is somebody described earlier an icon to the city well it ought to be used as an icon and you should be able to be in here on any given day I might tell you an interesting thing. I don't know who painted the tower green, but originally, oh, okay, uh, an ex-mayor there, okay. If you look at the original pictures, the original tower was a dark blue. And I got 14 cans of different mixes of blue, took photographs of the skyline rainy day, bright sun, front blows through, overcast, you name it. And I got pictures, and we put this paint on there. And, and, and listen, everybody, anybody that knows me, I don't put blue on buildings. I just, blue's for lake property and rivers and ladies' clothing and maybe a blue blazer, but not on buildings. Anyway, we picked out this blue that matched the sky 
the most days of the year so that this gold ball would, you know, be emphasized. And, and I was, one day I drove by and they are painting it green and I don't know, I can't figure that one out to this day. Um, yeah, another, one last story, the glass story. This glass has 14 karat gold in it, so it's not, it's not uh, going to be a victim to ultraviolet light or anything like that. It's like gold in your jewelry. And a company in England was been contracted to uh, make the glass, and they went bankrupt. I guess it was in fall of '81. We were in the midst of construction. And Don Shell spent some time on the phone. I know Rittenbach Engineering did and uh, convinced Pittsburgh Plate Glass to make this glass special for this job. And it's quite interesting, the glass from the equator down is laminated on the inside and tempered on the outside. So if you drop your iron or your gold bullion or whatever you've got with you that day and it hits the glass, it's like a windshield, it's not going to break through. If the glass below on the outside, it's insulated, it's tempered. If it did break and fall, it's going to fall like little pebbles. It won't hurt anybody. The glass above the equator is the same way. The laminated is on the outside, so if it's a hailstorm, it won't get damaged. And it's tempered on the inside so that if it did break, again, it won't hurt us. And uh, I just share that it's one of hundreds of little things that had to be thought about when we put this thing together. And uh, uh, I think Martha informed me, because I got to give her a plug, I, I can't, I can hardly believe that she put together this great book. I don't know, does everybody have this book yet? This book is incredible. She interviewed everybody alive that's been by this place. They're all quoted in here. And uh, I think it's fabulous that she would do that. Now, she says there's never been an accident here. But I've got to correct her on one thing. I never will forget, we had a little special dining room on the second floor called the Blue Room. It was a 60-seat um, gourmet. I mean, they really put out some vittles in that room. And some, we don't know if it's a UT student or somebody broke loose from San Quentin or whoever it was, but somebody shot a rifle shot from over on the UT campus and hit one pane of glass. And the last time I looked, that little hole was there and the glass worked, nobody got hurt. And I, I'm sure they never did find out, but I did, did you not know about that's the- in the book, but that's not an accident. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> That's not an accident then, okay. But I, that's the only thing I'm aware of that's ever happened around here. It scared the water out of me when I'd ride up the construction elevator, which was attached to the outside of the sphere. It was one of these, uh, boy, I tell you what, I must have been stupid to get up. But you know, that thing never failed. And to my knowledge, there wasn't any, any accidents or any injuries during construction. If it happened, I was unaware of them. But it took a crazy person to ride that construction elevator because it was hanging out here tied off to the sphere. There's a picture of it in this book. And that's the scariest I've ever been in my life was riding that construction elevator. Oh, by the way, to all those people that said, well, if you build the first spherical heated and cool building on the planet Earth, it'll leak. I haven't heard of it leaking. It may have but I haven't heard about it. But as you ride around and talk to your friends, that's something, a lot of these facts I share with you, the people of Knoxville just don't know about, and it is. This is the first heated and cool spherical building on the planet Earth, and it's yours. Well, unaccustomed as I am to public speaking, oh. <laughs> I, I did want to take very briefly and say three things. <clears throat> Number one, the unity of this community in leading into the World's Fair. Many of you will remember that during the late 70s and early 80s, the community was very much divided out. There was a lot of 
angst going and a lot of political conflict, et cetera, back and forth. I took office in January of 76. <clears throat> we started building a unified community at that point. The success of the World's Fair <clears throat> is a testament of this community and what it can accomplish as a community when we're all working together. The interesting thing is that we had to be insulted. We're family and we can bicker and carry on with each other, but we had to be insulted by an outside source and that occurred in April of 1980 when the Wall Street Journal wrote the article and they said that we were a scruffy little city on the Tennessee River and man did we ever get did we ever hunker down and get after those dudes north north of the Mason Sixton line and that point we move forward the second thing is that we have we all as taxpayers our total investment in the world's fair what we were responsible for was 42 million dollars the convention center is a hundred and a hundred and sixty million investment times were different but that 42 million dollar investment by the taxpayers of this community the return on that investment was over a half a billion dollars in public and private development so you look at it from a spirit standpoint from a financial standpoint and just from a plain old fund standpoint there's nothing that is ever compared but it tells us we've done it once and we can do it again the last thing I want to mention is in the course of all this, every time I'd get to feeling uppity, something would happen to bring, to, to sort of accentuate my sense of humility. And, you know, there'd be some sort of challenge. I thought I'd work through all of that until we were celebrating our 20th anniversary of the World's Fair. And the East Tennessee Historical Society had me come in as a speaker. And I was sort of getting to feel uppity again about all the, you know, the publicity, et cetera, that was going with it. They sent out a bulletin, a bulletin for to the, all the members of the, of the uh, East Tennessee Historical Society, and it said, former Mayor Randy Tyree will be our speaker. Mayor Tyree, along with other, other relics from the World's Fair, <laughs> will be available for for you to ask questions and for you to see. So it was sort of like, you know, you reach a point in life where all you gotta do is look back and you really enjoy all those good times and you enjoy those challenges. And Bill, I wanna tell you, there's, a, there's an old, there's a Chinese proverb about, a, you know, one picture being worth a thousand words, but I wanna tell you, your, your can-do spirit, and to you, Jesse, your can-do spirit, and to this community, the can-do spirit, it's worth 10,000 words. So that, in the long term and the short term, is what really counts. Thank y'all. This podcast is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, copyright 2008 by Knox County Public Library.